two weeks later, we were back on Satellite Spy doing a, another Ponsonby Cruising Cup race, and and Murray said, oh, I've spoken to Grant, and he hasn't heard from you. And I, I was like, oh, well, I thought that was the, you know, rum talking, to be honest. And I haven't done anything about it. I'm just too nervous about just being the one of a thousand people that send them letters. And he said, get on with it. But I remember as clear as it as if it was yesterday that the fathers on the boat um, were struggling. You could clearly tell that, that the reality of the chance of being lost, you know, in this race and, you know, even in the conditions we had at that time was very real. push a couple of buttons on the pilot to just come down three or four degrees and the thing I was probably a bit tired and I've obviously pushed the wrong button and the pilot started flashing at me auto jibe sequence in three seconds two one and jibing we just hooked onto a wave so the boat was like doing 23 24 knots and we were just pinned on our side Mike Sanderson is one of the most successful sailors of his generation. He's a former World Sailor of the Year, two-time winner of the Round the World race, including when he skipped ABN Amaro to victory in the 2005-2006 Volvo Ocean Race, being involved in multiple America's Cup campaigns, a record breaker, successful maxi yacht skipper, and now co-owner and CEO of Doyle Sales. Mike has plenty of stories to tell, and we touch on a few of those in this podcast from why he left school early and how he earned his ticket alongside many of his heroes on New Zealand Endeavour, to heading up international teams and dealing with the tragedy of losing a friend at sea while still racing. He clearly has a passion for the sport, and it doesn't matter if he's racing in a high-pressure environment or going for a blast with his son on the Auckland Harbour. He's also fascinated by trying to work out how to make a boat go fast and clearly being very good at figuring it out. Mike is also very down-to-earth, so it was a pleasure to talk to him on this podcast. I hope you enjoy. Mike Sanderson, welcome along to Broadreach Radio. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's great to get you on to talk a little bit about your sailing career because uh, there's plenty to digest in there. But I understand you've been having a to sort of lay low a bit lately with injuries. So how's that rehab going, and, and when do we expect to see you back in the boat? Yeah, well, I've uh, yeah. So it was it was voluntary. I um I last I, I've always enjoyed running, Michael. Just to, well, I don't enjoy it, but I've always run uh, just to. Um, to try and keep the weight off in bits and pieces. Uh, now that I'm uh, further back in the boat, you know, and uh, the grinders are pretty quick to push me off a handle. So, um, uh, yeah, I try and keep the weight off. And, yeah, so I had a meniscus reattachment in my left knee, which is quite a new operation. 
And uh, of course, we all think that it's going to, of course, you know, heal much faster on any of us um, than they recommend. But that wasn't the case. So I'm 15 weeks post-op now. And uh, actually just had, a, had uh, you know, one of my more successful runs on it this morning. So, yeah, back into it. I've, to be fair, I've, I, I pushed it a little bit, got back in the chair of after five weeks, much to my um, surgeon's um, uh, disgust. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I've done a few regattas already this year on it. So uh, it's going okay. It's 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 getting back to uh, back to normal, but fifty one on Sunday, so you know, got to start looking after myself. You know, maybe even a bit more than normal. Well, happy birthday! Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you mentioned the Cherub. That seems to be the boat that you've been sailing the most over the last couple of years. Just just tell us about that and what got you into this, and and what it's been like sailing with your your son. Well, so the so. Uh, Lots of people have commented on, you know, the great work we've done getting the Cherub back up and running in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, it really has been a group of us uh, fathers, if you like. And um, it it was it was all about um, trying to find something cool uh, for my son, Merrick, and I, uh, who at the time was 10, um, to just enjoy the pleasure of going for a sail. Um, he didn't enjoy the opti that much. Uh, he then got into a into an open skiff or a bick, um, which he you know he enjoyed that more because it was a bit more sort of um, you know game orientated. You know they 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 play all sorts of fun games in that class. Um, but reality is, I was probably going to lose him out of the sport if I didn't you know, find a way that him and I could go hooning around the harbour and, um, and uh, you know, just enjoy the, the pleasure of sailing. So, you know, I, f- I, I looked at all sorts of boats. We even looked at turbo and a fever and, um, you know, we looked at even the classes that were in the, in the UK, some of the other RS classes, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then I actually spoke to Glenn Ashby about a cherub, um, and because the, the Cherub kept going well in Australia and we actually found in one of the old ones from the late 80s that was built for the, for the worlds here, I think in 88 or 89. And, um, and yeah, we, we did it up in one of the lockdowns in 2020. Um, our first deal with mum was that we'd only use the parts which we had in the house left over from other projects, but quite quickly that got thrown out the window. And um, we, yeah, we went sailing, not expecting to ever race a cherub and, you know, posted some videos of us hooning down the harbour and, you know, it was unreal. There was just, you know, this sort of wave of interest and it, and it turned out that there were literally hundreds of people in, the, in a similar situation to us that reached out that were looking to really um, light up the, the, I guess, that enjoyment and that parent and child or, or two teenagers or, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend or whatever, um, husband and wife, um, going sailing in a cool little boat. And we've gone from none sailing in June 2020 to uh, more than 30 now on our registry um, uh, with class associations set up and, um, yeah, regattas and coaching days and clinics and bits and pieces. So it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, we've got 
Ray Davies and Dean Barker and Mark Orams and, you know, um, some great New Zealand sailing names um, uh, involved in the class and, um, you know, all doing it for the right reason, all doing it to spend times with their kids, etc., sailing together. So it's it's been awesome. Well, I know that your son is still sailing. Um, <laughs> do your kids tend to listen to you or even appreciate what you've achieved throughout your career? <laughs> We have a bit of banter. The you know the kids have got some idea you know um, uh, what both mum and dad have done. Of course, mum his uh, uh, sailing name was Emma Richards, um, who came fourth in the around the line race and has won transat races single handed, etc., and all sorts of things. And um, yeah, they joke about it. Um, you know that how. Yes, how the world's moved on, and how yeah, well maybe we used to be famous sailors, but that's that not the case any longer. Um, so yeah, we get it. We have there's plenty of there's plenty of banter in the household, um, but no, they enjoy. You know, we we had Merrick and I had an amazing moment, and almost you know quite an emotional moment. We were ripping down Auckland Harbour on one of those sort of uh, sunny southwesterly evenings uh charging towards Rangitoto and um you know he said to me you know dad you, you know you've you've skipped at AB and AMRO, Marisha, Comanche you know you, you get to steer Balamente you've, you've got all the coolest boats that you know that you've been that you've sailed on what what's your favorite and you know without the word of a lie right then and there doing 16 17 knots down the harbor with your with your 11 year old you know, wiring across, you know, fully stretched beside me, trimming the chute, it's pretty hard to beat. And I had to tell him that, you know, it's um, pretty special getting to getting to go sailing in a high performance little boat, you know, racing against the people that we do, um, you know, it really is, it, it's really special. So I, I just love it. Oh, it certainly sounds like it's made all the effort worthwhile. Yeah, um, yeah, it's fun. He mentioned that, you know, you're not famous now. Well, you still got a Wikipedia page. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, the first line on that goes into detail on the fact that in 2006, you were named World Sailor of the Year. Um, and that probably seems like a, a decent place to start. You know, what was it like to receive that award? Especially because in those days, I think it was voted on by your peers. Yes, yeah, it was. And it, and it was very special, you know, and... Um, it still is very special. Um, it's it was, a, you know, it was a very emotional time of my life. You know, um, you, you know, my, it sounds like such a cliche, but it you know it was such a. It really was my childhood dream to, to you know to be uh, to get to skipper a, a Whitbread boat and 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 which then of course became the Volvo Ocean Race and now the Ocean Race, but. You know that really was my childhood dream, and the aim was to try and win it, and to be fortunate enough to do it with the opportunity and the team of people that we had, and the luck, and you know the 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 things going our way, and this you know you know. But um, yeah, it was a it was a really special time, and um, yeah, it was it it was just you know it was it was just an amazing. Um, I guess reward for the for the group of people that we had. Yes, yes, my name is on it, um, but you know we had such a wonderful team with AB and Emro, and um, all the way from the 
sponsorship team to the shore crew to the to the those of us that were lucky enough to be on board and uh, they're all still dear friends of mine you know my whole avian amro crew were groomsmen um at my wedding um at emma and my wedding which funnily enough is actually our 16th wedding anniversary uh today and so um yeah 16 years ago today we were in you know in cows getting married uh with the other 10 of of, of our crew lined up behind me and uh and um yeah and what was a very special time in our lives man you're bringing out all the anniversaries this week yeah, I know. It's a scary time. Yeah. Everything seems to happen in our house to either the end of May or uh, or early October. So I'm not sure why that is. Well, May expensive for those who have to buy all the presents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is me. So whether that's for my birthday or anyone else's. So yeah, exactly. So winning that World Sale of the Year, did you ever think that that was something achievable for that, you know, that young kid from Northland who dropped out of a fairly elite school early <laughs> yeah. to become a sailmaker? Yeah, I mean, no, uh, you know, never, never, the, you know, the World Sale of the Year thing was, it, you know, it, that was, that was massive. But, y- you know, I certainly, I, even in my early you know, early childhood, before professional sailing was really known about in New Zealand, I, you know, I did a, I did a business case, you know, I did a, a project at school when I was about 12 about how I could make money um, sailing. And, and, you know, this is, you know, at that stage, really, like delivery skippers were paid. Um and that was about it. The odd super yacht, the odd super yacht captain. And of course, super yacht in those days would have been seventy feet long. You know, let alone seventy meters like they are now. But you know, really, professional sailing didn't start in New Zealand. You know, until um, you know the KZ seven, the New Zealand Challenge went to Fremantle in, in 85, 80, uh, You know, eighty six, eighty seven. So you know, I think if you go back to the you know, Ceramco and, and Fly guys in 81, 82, they might have been paid $100 a month or something, you know, which which bought them a few beers in the stopover. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, from a very early age, I was looking at how I could uh, turn it into a career. And, um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah. Never in my wildest dreams, though, would it would it have eventuated uh, into that World Sailor of the Year trophy. To put yourself in your shoes, your family, you know, who from what I can tell were quite academic, you know, what did you say to them and, and <laughs> when you you told them that you wanted to leave school to be a sailmaker? Yeah, well, I was, you know, I was so fortunate and, and it was actually even worse than that. I'd, I'd made the final selection um squad for head boy for the school for the for the next for the next for the following year um and so you can imagine it went down not not with my family with the school that I was leaving to do an apprenticeship um because that just wasn't you know I think instantly I was dropped out of head boy material um but um but yeah I mean I you know there was a lot of pressure back then you know we're talking late 80s um, you know, there was still caning at school. There was still, you know, the system called fagging where you, you know, you were looked at, you know, you were, 
uh, as a junior, you were you had a senior school member. So you know we were still very much in the in the old English school system. So yes, if you were you were expected to go to university, and and um, but my family were unbelievable. Um, you know, I probably got more. Uh, I probably got a harder time from it about it from some of my friends of my you know family um you know i was told a couple of times that i'd wasted my parents money etc etc and um but you know my family couldn't have been more supportive um with what i was going to do i i was on a mission you know i i wasn't leaving i was leaving school to become a sale maker because i had decided that sale making was my road to professional sailing and you know i you know at that stage i knew the whole crew of 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 say kz7 and fremantle and um you know you only have to look through that crew list at that stage and see how many of them were sail makers you know chris dixon brad butterworth mike quilter tony ray simon daubney you know um all these guys you know, were were sail makers. So you looked at the trimming loop and the afterguard loop um, of KZ7. You know, they were all sail makers. So so that had a big part uh, in me becoming a sail maker because that's what you know. That's how I saw my road into professional sailing. And and that's that's been a very good decision for me. It um, you know straight away I was entrenched. You know, every day you're eating, living, breathing, making boats go faster. Trying to work out how to do that, and uh, it's been a it's been a trade which has certainly served me well. Yeah, well, less than five le- five years later, you found yourself on New Zealand Endeavour in Grant Dalton's team, not only sailing in that um, I think ninety three ninety four Whitbread round the world race, but winning it. I mean, how did that happen? Well, so yeah, I, again, I was very fortunate. Um, I had just won um, the Elliott 5.9 Nationals, which is a bit like the Cherub as a class, which has been very good to me. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed some some good success there over the years. And um, so I got asked by uh, Peter Boyd, who's, who's a good friend of mine and um, who's, a, you know, a sail maker and a covers and upholstery um, maker, and he was sailing on um, Satellite Spy with Murray Ross. And they asked me to come and do, I think, a Wednesday. I know, a, a Sunday, you know, just squadron winter race. Um, so I started trimming on that. And then we did the Coastal Classic. And I ended up, uh, I ended up steering for what was supposed to be a sort of half-hour stint. Uh, on Satellite Spy, and, you know, three hours later, Murray still had me there. Um, anyway, we got to Russell, and we'd won the 40-foot division, and, um, you know, a few a few rum and cokes on Russell Wharf later. Uh, you know, I was only 20, and so it was a bit of a baptism of fire to get to hang out with these legends. Um, you know, Murray said to me, I, I want, you know, have you ever considered doing the Whitbread race? And I was like, you know, of course, but you know, I'd always assumed this next one was just too soon. I was aiming for the 96, 97. And he said, well, you know, I'm heavily involved with Grant Dalton's New Zealand Endeavour campaign, which, of course, I knew. And, you know, he said, 
I want you to send, I want you to, you know, send Grant a letter. Anyway, two weeks later, we were back on Satellite Spy doing a, another Ponsonby Cruising Cub race. And, and Murray said, I've spoken to Grant and he hasn't heard from you. And I, I was like, oh, well, I thought that was the, you know, rum talking, to be honest. Um, and I haven't done anything about it. I'm just too nervous about just being the one of a thousand people that send them letters. And he said, get on with it. So anyway, I, I did. I, I sat down with my mum and we drafted this letter, which she's, which I've actually still got. She kept it. And, um, and sure enough, I got this. I got this reply back that I'd made it to the next selection of interviews. And in those days, getting on a, on a Whitbread crew in New Zealand, you know, it was, it, it was, it was a really big deal. Like we, we all, um, you know, literally lined up outside these offices in the squadron and we had an interview process. And, um, and I remember it clear as day of Murray Ross, uh, Kevin Shoebridge um, interviewed me. Uh, and then uh, with with Grant, and um, yeah, I, I made the cut, and so uh, suddenly, you know, from me having, you know, the likes of Tony Ray and um, you know Glenn Sowry and uh, you know Mike Quilter and Alan Pryor and and all these people's pictures on my wall from Fremantle, um, I was going to get to go sailing with them, which was obviously huge. Yeah, what was that like? Because it's a fairly high powered team, you know, and and you're the <laughs> 20-year-old kids, you say? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just had my 21st birthday, so I just turned 21. And, um, yeah, it was, it it was, it was, uh, yeah, quite daunting. I I remember, um, yeah, one of the, we, we, the boat was a little bit late getting in the water and we had to, um, we had to get the, we had to get it down to Wellington for the launching and uh, the launching was, you know, was was live on TV at six o'clock, you know, t- ten to six before the news, all this sort of thing. So it was, you know, it was a really big sort of national program. Anyway, we got we were coming around Cape Reinga, and we it was one of the first times we'd ever set set a spinnaker on the boat. And um, I thought I heard the call, you know, go brace. So I was one of the young trimmers. So I remember loading the. The brace onto the winch and the grinders ground it back, and the only issue was the brace wasn't actually clipped onto the uh, onto the Jenica at all. It was clipped onto the pulpit on the bow, so we managed to rip the pulpit straight off the bow. So that was one of my first acts uh, on New Zealand Endeavour. And um, if you ever if you look at the pictures of Barbara Kendall uh, launching New Zealand Endeavour in Wellington, there's no pulpit on the boat, and that's one of my claim to fame. Well, they must have seen something because they must have invited you back even after that incident. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I think, it, it, to be fair, it actually wasn't all my fault. One, someone on the bow had gone go brace, and um, so a little bit, a little bit of new new team confusion. But uh, I was the the lemon holding on to the the bit of rope. So um, yeah, it, it wasn't totally pinned on me. So you're immersed in this environment and you talked about all those names who are, who are part of that team, you know, I guess what influence did that have on you on things like putting a successful campaign together and the sorts of things, you know, needed to make a team tick? Because it wasn't long before you were entrusted in a leadership role. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously getting to, to, do, a, to do a race with those guys and, um, you know, you, I mean, you know, you 
one thing which uh, you know I can't. I I I I'd gone straight from Munga to Perry Primary School with 150 people and literally either riding my motorbike and be in my jandals to to down the you know the farm road you know to to King's College and boarding at King's College in Auckland, which is unbelievable baptism of fire. And, but but there you did you know at those private schools then and 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 school in general then you know there there was this very staunch seniority and you know sort of respect um, uh, ethos and and history in place and um, that that definitely bode well for me um, in those early days in the you know because I I did keep my mouth shut and I got my head down and and was used to working hard. Um, and, you know, I remember a few times, you know, we'd pull a spinnaker down in front of, you know, peel down to a smaller chute in a black cloud. And, I, you know, I'd sort of under my, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, I wonder what we're, you know, that seems a bit light on, you know. And next minute we'd have 45 or 50 knots of wind. And I'd be like, oh, glad I didn't say anything, you know. Um, so you learn, you know, you learn a lot if you've gone in there with the right attitude. Um you know, if you if you keep your ears open and your mouth shut, and and you know, in those early days, and just, uh, but you know, also really, you know, believe in in yourself. You know, especially especially steering, you, you know, a Whitbread boat. Um, you know, that's at the end of the day, that's you know, just the art of keeping the the boat under the rig, and that's no different whether it's a cherub doing twenty knots down the harbour or a maxi catch doing. You know, twenty knots down a down a down a Whitbread, down a wave in the Southern Ocean. You know, it's the same skill, and so you do have to have a certain element of belief that you do know what you're talking about. You know, and um, or know what you're doing. Um, so it's it's a fine balance, though, because the last thing you want is some cocky little, uh, you know, arrogant person that thinks they've thinks they know it all at at twenty one. But also, you know, you do need you do need the person to to um, you know, grunt up and and be able to to uh, you know push the boat and push themselves and and you know know what they're doing. So you actually get out there and you, you race around the world and you know people talk about it being a dream for many young sailors and and it was a dream of yours. Did the kind of reality match the dream? You know how how difficult was yeah. it? I mean, definitely the New Zealand Endeavour race did. I mean, because I you know I had. I had lived literally every day of the 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 eighty nine ninety race, you know Steinlager versus Fisher and Paykel around the world. I mean, I knew, you know, I every scared, uh, you know, what they were doing. Every you know TV show that I could see on it, every you know book. And to be fair, our ninety three ninety four race, you know, was just like the brochure said it was going to be, you know, we left from, from Portsmouth with the big spectator fleet, you know, we ran out of the heart, you know, we ran down the Solent and, and, you know, we were racing to Punta del Est and, um, you, you know, we, we went further West and made big gains and, you know, then, you know, we all got all the, all the new kids on the block got hammered by King Neptune across the, you know, uh, uh, you know, across the equator, and and then the, you know the arrival into Punta, and then you know the second leg, the dive down south, and we actually broke our mizzen mast, and the wind gear froze, and um, you know it it 
the race, that race, you know, and then, you know, that went on and on. We had the match race into Auckland, you know, where we had these huge crowds turn up at, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning in Auckland to watch, um, you know, what ended up being, you know, a, a duel between Tokyo and New Zealand Endeavour, which, you know, we didn't pass them until just before North Head uh, coming into the finish. And uh, so, you know, these huge, which would, which was just like my whole fairy tale had played out of my head, you know, um, from the from the villains to the heroes to the dramas to the highs and lows. It was, um, it, it couldn't have been more stereotypical to what I was expecting. So, yeah, quite, quite amazing. Is there a period afterwards where you kind of experience a bit of a low because you've been on this massive high, I guess, for so many months and then all of a sudden it's it's over? Well, you know, the, the, the 93, 94 race went, you know, went well for me. Um, you know, obviously we'd won in bits and pieces, but personally, you know, quite a few opportunities popped up straight after that um, because, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd worked hard and, you know, as, as a sail maker on board and, um, so, you know, straight after that, uh, you know, I got to do the Kenwood Cup um, and the New Zealand team and I got to, um, and then I went straight to San Diego not long after to do the 95 Cup with Chris Dixon with the Tag Heuer program. Um, and again, so, uh, you know, a new bunch of people, which, you know, I'd obviously been following Dicko's career um, f- for years and and then, uh, you know, so it's very much went to, if you like to from the from the Whitbread from the highs of the Whitbread to uh, suddenly being in San Diego trimming the main sheet on an America's Cup boat um you know now only you know only you know 20 24 25 years old so uh you know that whole period of my life was was a lot of fun and and we you know we we got some great opportunities um yeah, well, there's another opportunity with Dalton for the next Whitbread, this time with Merritt Cup. Um, you finished second overall, but how do I guess did this race differ to the first experience after that brochure experience? Yeah, well, Merritt, we, you know, we, 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 we didn't have the greatest of campaigns. The boats weren't great. We probably took the wrong boat of even the two that we had. Um, you know, it was our first experience with Whitbread 60s and we were a bit naive with regards to the, you know, the, um, the we were really conscious of the weight and the fit out, but the the boats, um, you know, they, they, they weren't the greatest. And we, a lot of it was, you know, probably all of it was our doing. Um, you, you know, we were, yeah, I, I'm not, not totally sure what, what happened with Merritt. Um, we had a, we had another really strong sailing team. Um, yes, but uh, you know it wasn't our greatest campaign, which we were all guilty of. Um, and um, you know we for us to salvage second uh, out of that race was was quite a miracle, to be honest. Um, you know it, it it was amazing for me. I got to be a watch captain at, at you know at at uh, you know a young age and um and lead you know lead and we only had two on board so kevin shoebridge ran one watch and i ran the other one and um yeah that then that was really cool um and you know really my first sort of foray into leadership on a on a whitbread boat 
um yeah so yeah still still amazing learning experience um you know yeah we did lots of things right but uh, we certainly missed a few tricks also in that campaign Mm. You talk about a lot of these opportunities that came through and, and another one was that pathway into the maxi yacht racing. Um, you're involved in a, you know, a number of big boat campaigns on the likes of Stealth, Sayonara, uh, you mentioned Mari Cha. Just to explain to us kind of like what is that scene like because you're rubbing shoulders with some, some pretty wealthy people and sometimes quite famous people. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's, I mean, you know, one thing that you learn very quickly when you start rubbing shoulders in those circles is that, you know, that the, um, it, it takes a lot to, to earn the trust of those people that have been that successful in, in business. And, and that, and that trust is something which you really have to take very seriously. And, and you know, I'm I'm still super conscious of that now. I you know I race skipper Bob Iger's boat, the the ex CEO and chairman of Disney. Um, you know, and that's one of the regattas I've done again this year. Um, you you know, and uh, I have done for Wendy Schmidt and as you say Larry Ellison and and you know Hep Fouth and really fortunate with the people that I've got to sail with over the years because you learn a huge amount from these people. <laughs> Um, but the reality is we're so fortunate because we've got them in this environment, which it's their pleasure time. And, you know, so, and it's a double win because they're also used to being the best, you know, and the most experienced at what they do when they're in the room chairing a board meeting or something. Whereas when they're sailing with us, you know, they realise that they they can they can learn off off us, and they can, you know, they need to trust us, and we need to, you know, we are responsible for getting the result um, for them that they want. So it's it, we're, it's such a pleasure of an environment to be in, if that makes sense. Um, but you really do need to, you know. Um, appreciate um how you've made it into the inner sanctum and how big a deal that is um yeah so it, I, I love it i love the challenge of it um i certainly um you know it's it's a big part of why i enjoy that that sailing on those boats is to get the opportunity to spend time with people of that caliber so how much um is a part of, I guess, of, of professional sailing is that relationship building. And, and is that something you did fairly naturally or, or is it sort of a learned skill? Oh, I think, you know, um, I mean, I, I think it's a bit of both. Um, I, you know, I, I think to start with, you, you know, professional sailing has, has very few dickheads in it because, you know, we're pretty brutal at flushing those out, flushing them out, you know. And uh, I think we're really fortunate, you know, that that's the case. And I, I think a lot of that is because, you, you know, um, I think sailing, uh, you know, it's, it's different to, to football, isn't it, where you can, your, your talent will be the overshining factor. Whereas with sailing, you know, yes, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you're really not a team player and really 
you know, people aren't going to inv- ask you to be part of their team, etc., then your opportunities are really limited. So I guess, you know, to answer your question, you know, by the time you get to the pointy end of the professional sailing world, uh, you know, especially in big boats and, in you know, Volvos and America's Cups, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, you, you're often with quite, you, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty much all nice people to be around. So, um, um, yeah, I think we're really fortunate as a sport um, that that's the case. And I think that's why, you know, we get um, these uh, wealthy people um, interested in, in, in our sport and interested in, in being a part of it. Um, and yeah, it's yeah, I think we're really privileged for that to be the case. Yeah, well, some of these people put quite a lot of trust in you, didn't they? Because you were soon leading uh, programs, designing programs, uh, most notably Mari Char 4, which was the world's longest and fastest racing monohull. You know, what was that time like? And, and I guess what was it like to be spending millions of someone else's money? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you you know, you at the end of the day, you're sort of given a, a task and you and you quickly work out that not achieving it the task for them is is the biggest waste of their money um and so you know i mean they with these people that they're normally very clear on what the goal is and and what the mandate is and you know certainly if you've got a budget well then you know you've got to then understand um you, you know where the bang for your buck is and i think that's a really you know, important skill to have in our, in our, you know, in our game and, you know, getting them, and it's not just about value for money, it's about value for time and, you know, value for resource and value, yeah, and value for every dollar spent as well. So that's, I think, you know, whether it be a Marisha trying to break a transatlantic record or a you know, Bellamente trying to win a Maxi Worlds or, or whatever it might be, you know, being good at analysing, you know, bang for your buck um, is is something which, you know, is definitely a, a, a skill set which is worth uh, taking very seriously. And, um, yeah, so back to your point, though, you know, um, you know, you do – you. you the secret, obviously, is just to get a great team around you. Um, you know, make sure that you you get the very best people in each department, and then making sure that you actually listen to them and uh, and create a platform where they're able to do their best work. Um, you know, so many teams, I think, get the people, um, but then you know think that that's the job done. Whereas the secret, obviously, is creating an environment which those great people get to work together with other great people, and the platform is established, which um, you know creates something special, um, and that's that's the golden arrow, really. You mentioned records, and you broke quite a, a few of them, like the transatlantic one. Yeah, I guess how motivated were you by setting records, or were you more interested in? you know, winning races like the Whitbread or, or America's Cup or whatever? 
I think the what I was motivated and still am motivated about is achieving the goal. So um, you know, with the the no matter whose goal it was. So with Robert Miller with Marisha, his goal, you know, was to break the transatlantic record, and not by a small margin, but he wanted to he wanted to crush it. And and so we had to be quite, I guess, um, y- you know, really strict with ourselves that that what we were doing and the decisions we were making. And again, I was just part of the team. Um, was you know that that uh, that the boat that we were creating had the highest probability of of breaking you know of smashing the, the the transatlantic record you know even though in our calendar we were going to do Saint-Tropez and Antigua race week and these other events you know it would have been easy to have been swayed to have made a better boat for Antigua race week or for this Wilder Saint-Tropez or and and probably still you know broken the record but we wouldn't have held it for 13 years or whatever it was before it was broken by Comanche um, you know, the boat that we designed, built and delivered and sailed, um, you know, really was the ultimate transatlantic machine at that time. And, um, yeah, very proud of that. So, so back to your point, uh, you yeah, know, just achieving the goal, um, whatever the goal was at the time, um, was, you know, what was what really motivated, motivated me. And, and, and I was lucky enough to be part of some you know, in, the, in a sort of five or six year period, you know, with Pete Homburg, we got to world number one on the match racing tour. You know, um, we uh, yeah, broke the transatlantic record. You know, I managed to come third in a transit single handed race. And, and then obviously, you know, the penultimate one was the, the Volvo Ocean Race win. So, you know, we, we had a great string uh, of, in, in a period of time there where, uh, with a lot of focus, we managed to tick off some really cool stuff. That's interesting because you've you've sort of often said that you're not the fastest sailor, but your skill is making a boat go faster. So is that what you mean? It's about the the campaign, is or, or is it more of a technical thing? It, it for sure, you know, for sure. If we were all walking down to the dock, and we were given, you know, a uh, uh, you know, an MRX or a young 88 and they're all the same, then, you know, I, you know, I'll go okay. And, um, hopefully I can drag enough other good people along to, that we could get a decent result. But the bit I enjoy is, and the bit which really, you know, um, smokes my tires is, is the, the start, the whole process, you know, uh, a rule which has enough room, to to um, ex, you know to look into ways of making the boat go faster and and be easier to to race well um, you know having the freedom to 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 pick the team and to be smart with the chemistry between the team and then you know really to try and manage a, a really good campaign and you know I've been so privileged to be you know involved in some really good campaigns and I've also you know, had some, which, you know, whether I'm in a leadership role or not, haven't gone so well. And, you know, you really got to make sure that whether it's good or bad, 
that you really understand why in both cases and 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 try and learn as much as possible from winning or losing and uh so that you can take that into the, into whatever you do next a pretty decent campaign that you're involved in albeit uh, towards the the end of it was in the 2000 America's Cup with Team New Zealand and their defence of the of the cup. Uh, you, I think you're mostly sailing on the backup boat to sort of prepare the team for the match. You know, what was that experience like, um, having come from you know all these other types of teams? Yeah, well, that was a really you know a fortunate opportunity. Again, you know, I was I was doing lots of other really cool stuff at the time, and I I was really actually spending very little time in New Zealand, and that was literally you know it must have been in about I I guess only a few months before the cup, and Team New Zealand were getting into their really their final two boat racing program. Uh, before the 2000 defence and and Dean Barker rang me to see if I'd come into the main sheet uh, on 57 um, which which was amazing you know and um, so I, I would literally trundle up when the boats are in the water and come in and 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 do the main sheet for them on the on the race days and you know that that again it was just a great opportunity to um, to get thrown into the deep end on the you know the inner sanctum of of Team New Zealand um, when it was you know at the at the peak of that era if you like um, and yeah just very cool to see I'd actually done a bit of coaching for America True uh, several months earlier and um, so I was sort of somewhat up to speed with where the challenges were. And um, one of the first days I was out there, we the challengers were actually racing, and they were they were at the upper wind limit. And Russell and Brad were were determined that we were going to keep pushing on at, at Team New Zealand, and we actually ran back through their start line while they were under AP um, with testing testing spinnakers, and you know and. And, you know, so that was one of my first sort of, um, y- you know, or maybe more obvious introductions <laughs> into, you know, the, the skill of, of the mindset and, and you know, positioning yourself uh, against the opposition, you know, for the challenges to be on hold and for the defender to, to, to be match racing through their race course, you know, jibing symmetrical spinnakers was a pretty strong statement and um i remember having a quite a a good little chuckle to myself over that and and storing that one away for another day was it pretty clear to you that team new zealand was gonna hang on to the cup that time russell russell actually pulled me aside when we got back to the dock and because he was aware i'd been sailing with the challenges and said oh how do you think we're going and i i i just shook my head and said that you know this is going to be uh, the whitewash that it that it went on to be. I said that these in two thousand, Team New Zealand were just in a whole nother level. Um, and you know, if you look back through the campaigns, uh, maybe just this this last one where obviously Luna Rossa gave them a bit more of a nudge than it was expecting. Uh, that two thousand defence was un- unbelievably strong uh, showing from Team NZ. You've said that professional sailing changed after that America's Cup in 2000 and sailors could command much larger salaries than in the past. 
what was that period like? And and I guess what was your approach to the offers that that came your way? Because you know, in professional sport, the biggest offers aren't always the best ideas. No, for sure. And you you know you've got to you know we're not the window's not that long where you you get to do this. And um, to be fair, though, those of us that were in the you know, if you think about it, you know, if it, the whole professional sailing only started really for New Zealand and Fremantle in, in 87. And here we are, you know, only talking about 13 years later in 2000, it being almost at the at the peak, you know, in, in, in New Zealand sailing with the 2000 Cup, you know. So it's, a, it's an incredibly short amount of time. So those of us that are now you know, just, you know, of my era and sort of half a generation before and, uh, you know, I really, we, you know, we were really fortunate with the timing. So, you know, New Zealand had very strong Whitbread teams. Um, it had very strong America's Cup teams. There were a lot of people involved. There were a lot of people on the boats. Um, and there were a lot of opportunities that were coming around. Um this, the professional sailing did change after 2000. And, you know, we can obviously thank, you know, um, Ernesto Bertarelli and, and uh, you know, the one pro, programs like One World um, for coming in and, um, you, you know, creating teams like Alinghi, One World, BMW, Oracle Racing, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that 2000 through to the 2007 um America's Cup in Valencia were were some very strong uh, period. You know, it was a very strong period in professional sailing. And um, yeah, if you were if you were fortunate enough to be you know somewhat at your peak in that period, then um, you know there were lots of great opportunities. Um, how to choose where to go and what to do? Um, a lot of that came down to to you know obviously just weighing up. Um, what you thought the success rate was of the team and um, and obviously loyalty. For me, uh, because I wasn't part of the, you know, the instant, the immediate inner sanctum of 2000 and I was already sailing with Larry Ellison, um, you know, pre-2000, um, when he decided to do Oracle Racing, it wasn't, really like I was leaving Team New Zealand to, to do Oracle Racing. I was actually much more part of the Sayonara team than I was um, the Team New Zealand team, if you like. So it was only natural that I I, I went to Oracle for the 2003 Cup. Um, so, yeah, that wasn't particularly hard for me. You guys finished second in that Challenger Series, losing out to Alingi, who obviously famously beat team New Zealand in the final but you know you described that campaign I think as a bit of a shambles and most (laughs) people who finish second in their first ever cup attempt you know would probably be reasonably satisfied by that so what did you mean by that? Well I think if you look at the team New Zealand you know defence of 2003 it was probably a bigger shambles you know Um, and so yeah maybe um, you know, we we uh, I'm fairly certain we would have beaten Team New Zealand uh, at at Oracle uh, in 03, and so yeah, maybe I should be more proud of the 03 second place to Alingi in the Challenger Series than I, than I am. But you know, I just see 
what we left on the table there um, as far as opportunities. And, um, you know, a lot of that was Larry being new to that, to that, to, to the America's Cup. And, um, um, you know, we had a lot of, we had a lot of leadership changes at the top of that team. We had a lot of um, sort of, uh, most of which were quite erratic um, and were, and reactive. And, um, you know, it, it was just, it just could have been so much better with the opportunity and the budget that we had. So I, I learned a huge amount from that period, um, you know, just with regards to stability and, you know, in the team, um, you know, picking the right, uh, cult, you know, picking the right people to, to create the right culture. Um, yes, so many things um, I learned from that, which I was able to take into the ABN AMRO campaign and, um, uh, yeah, really made sure that I made the most of that opportunity. Yeah, we'll talk about ABN AMRO shortly, but just um, just want to talk to you about Larry Allison. You know, did you see something flicking him during that 03 event? Because, you know, he went on to become one of the, the big players of the America's Cup. I think, I think what we missed in 03 was Larry at that stage had things at arm's length. And I think you've got a, you've only got to look at the Alinghi campaign, you know, where Ernesto Bertarelli, you know, ultimately we were beaten by, by Ernesto and the, and Russell and Brad and the Alinghi team. But, you know, there you've got two of, you know, two incredibly successful businessmen and and what they've done and achieved and and you know Larry Ernesto lived in Auckland and he raced sailed on the boat and he was super involved in 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 the team and yes he let Russell run it and, and but but I'm sure a huge part of Ernesto's culture work ethic you know um uh, I guess leadership filtered down into creating the culture of a lingi. We, we, you know, Larry didn't really have time for us then. He would, he would, would sort of fire these darts down. Some which would be useful, most of which wasn't, you know. And um, it was a very different. It was a very different style, and I think probably. What Larry learnt from '03 was that if he was going to go on and continue to spend the amount of money that he he wanted to with the America's Cup and the success he wanted, that he was either going to have to get a very strong uh, leader like he did with Russell, or um, or get more involved himself. Um, and yeah, he yeah, I think he, in reality he did both. Uh, after 03. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was your last involvement in the America's Cup. You know, so do you ever see yourself returning to the Cup, especially given your background in, in leading teams? Yeah, so I I actually, got, for three years, I, I ran um, the British America's Cup team, which never actually went to do, never actually did an America's Cup. So... Straight after ABN, I was employed um, 
to be the team director of of Team Origin, and uh, you know, which was really, which was really hard work and a and a quite a difficult time in my life. Um, because you, you, yeah, we were we were battling against all sorts of um, yeah. Well, well, obviously, Alingi and and Oracle were in court over the cup, and we were trying to put this British America's Cup team together. Um, we did quite a few of those Louis Vuitton events, which we were actually you know quite a big part in helping organise and get the challenges to get the challenges racing. So it was a you know it was a really challenging time. Um, it was also quite political because, you know, um, as has proven to be the case, you know, Ben Ainsley really, you know, wanted his own team and, and whereas I was put in there by the team principal to run it. Um, so it was, you know, it was an interesting time. Um, but again, I learned a huge amount. Um, and yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't be against um, you know, I'd love to. I'd love the opportunity to do it again, um, and I'd certainly love to be able to do it again, knowing what I now know. Um, but you know, right now, of course, you know, I'm 150% involved. You know, um, head down with with Doyle Sales and where we can take that, and uh, I'm an, and I'm enjoying that very much. Yeah, it's not like you don't have a wee bit on your plate right now, um, and we'll, no. we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. But um, you, you know, you've we've mentioned the the O five O six Volvo campaign with ABM and Amro. Um, when you were recruited as skipper for that that team, you know, how did you get that role? Well, it was it was really interesting. Emma and I were actually um, with our Pinda sponsorship at the time. Um, we were actually trying to, to put a team together. We were in the early stages of trying to put a team together with Pindar um, to, to do that 0506 race. And um, Emma had a new Open 60, which was actually Graham Dalton's old boat, Hexagon, um, which he had done the race, um, which Emma had come forth in, um, but had had to retire in Brazil. And so we got his boat, um, which was an Owen Clark design, quite a new generation boat at the time. Um, and we actually re- we did that up beside Marisha while we were in Cherbourg, while we were finishing the build of Marisha. And um, the 04 Transat race, so from Plymouth to Boston, so, you know, the wrong way, as they say, across the Atlantic, single-handed race was coming up and it was in a Vendée Globe year so you had all the big players um, doing the race Um, it was one of their sort of qualifiers for the Vendée Globe and Emma didn't want to do it Um, the boat was big and powerful and and she was keen to two-handed race it but not not solo so I put my hand up stupidly to do to do the race Um, I'd never actually navigated a boat in a race before and I'd never done a single-handed race. So my first single-handed race, which was going to be um, across the Atlantic in an Open 60. and But we had an amazing team. Um, so Dave Endine, Matt Smeaton, Brad Jackson, and, um, and uh, yeah, we had, a, we had a, 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 a great team that, that we, we put together. Troy Tyndall. Um, were all in their early, you know, we, many of them were in their early days of campaigns. 
um, and we were based out of the UK and, and we, we got this Open 60 going pretty well. And um, I, I led for a good portion of that race until I she broke a dagger board. Um, but that was an awesome, uh, you know, an awesome uh, race. Amazing to be a part of. I, I loved it. Um, but anyway, I was on the dock in, in Plymouth before the start. And and um, Juan K, Juan Kumajan and, um, and Roy Heiner came walking down the dock and they had just recently announced the ABN AMRO campaign, um, which was going to be a pretty big, you, you know, definitely uh, a Goliath of a, of a challenge. And they spoke to me about it and they, you know, they really loved what I'd done with the Open 60. I knew Roy well because we were together at Oracle uh, in 03 and we'd done a lot of sailing together at Oracle. Um, and I, I didn't know Juan at all. And um, anyway, I chatted to them about it and they said, oh, where are you at with your campaign, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, oh, well, we're pretty close to actually pulling the pulling the pin on it because, you know, we're, we're struggling to raise the money. Anyway, I did the race. The race went really well. Um, I was on the dock. I was literally on the dock in Boston um, and and the and they walked down the dock in Boston again. And I was like, okay, this is a bit weird now. And um, yeah, anyway, so we, we chatted again and um, um, nothing more came of it. Uh, I flew from Boston back to New Zealand. I'd literally walked in the door at home in, in New Zealand and Roy rang me and said, oh, the board of ABN AMRO would like to see you on Tuesday in, in Holland. And this was like on a Thursday, Friday, um, and so I was like, "Roy, I've just left Boston." You know, um, it would have been much easier if you could have told me that yesterday. Uh, anyway, that the rest is history. I, I I did get on the plane, went back to, and met the board uh, with ABN, and was and was offered the job. And um, yeah, an, an amazing time of my life. Man, you must have been terribly jet lagged to walk into yeah. that boardroom. <laughs> well, I was so tired, I don't think the jet lag had even had a chance to kick in. All right, but, uh, running on adrenaline. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, well, they were just t just testing you for the you know around the world race because that's the replicating the conditions, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Something like that. That was their theory, maybe. See if he's up for it. Did it kind of feel like you'd struck the jackpot? Because, you know, you talked about this was a Goliath of a team, well-funded, you were given plenty of authority to make major decisions. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's funny, you know, um, I, one of the first hires was obviously, you know, my longtime friend, and, and we'd already done two races around the world together, Brad Jackson. And, and you know, Brad's a man of very few words, but but you know very accurate in the few things that he says you know and um he actually stopped me one day and 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 said you know mate you you know this is this is massive for you that you know that you're going to get to skip of this whip red boat you know and and that stopped me in my tracks i remember at the time you know quite a as I said, he's a man of few words, not particularly high on emotion. For those of you, you know that are you that are listening to this, will know um, that know him, you know. And um, so, yeah, if he comes out with a with a punchline like that, you 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 have to listen. And 
I remember those those words. They stayed with me for a long time during the you know the, the responsibility I I had, um, you know, and um, but it was also you know it was it was amazing doing it with the Dutch because the Dutch are brutally honest. You know, you know where you stand. Uh, AB and AMRO also have a very long history uh, in football and soccer. And, you know, they're longtime sponsors of the, of Ajax, the football team. And um, I was, I was well aware of the culture that, you know, if they'd, they'd given me, Plenty of, you know, plenty of opportunity, plenty of responsibility, but, you know, to be under no illusion that if I didn't perform as they were expecting, that they would be ruthless, you know, and uh, fortunately enough, it it went well for us. But um, I was certainly never under any illusion that, you know, the, the, the catchphrase of the team was one clear goal. You know, so you, you know they they were they knew they knew what they wanted, and you know they they it, it's a funny old thing. You know, we had no on our on our ABN Emro one, so on our you know we were a two boat program, but um, you know on the on the on the open boat as we called it, there was you know we had no nationality requirement, we had no you know there were no rules. That the, the aim was to win the race, and um, yeah, that's it's. It's special, but it also comes with a lot of responsibility. So you did win it. So did it basically <laughs> unfold as well as you probably could have hoped for? Oh, you know, I mean, I think the ultimate performance of what the team, you know, did on the water far exceeded our expectations. And, you know, it, you know, you think back and there were so many parts to that puzzle which which did play out you know for us um and but but you know with for lots of good reason you know I look back and um you know we we had you know nobody had a higher level of helmsman in the crew across you know across our you know, seven or eight of us that that steered the boat um, than we did. Um, obviously, we um, were very punchy with with Juan K and the design and the design philosophy that we went down. Um, you know, we had the most powerful boat. We pushed we pushed the engineering the hardest, so we had the most powerful boat with the heaviest bulb, um, and so that was a double win. Uh, we introduced the world to 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 Stan Honey, the you know the navigator and his his unbelievable talent and ability. Um, you know, obviously the west coast of America was well aware of his success in the Transpac race and Carbo races, and and you know maybe even Newport to Bermuda and a few things on the east coast as well. But you know the world, you know even though he was fifty years old you know, when he was with us at ABN, you know, getting to sail with Stan was one of the greatest, you know, experiences of that race. Um, but yeah, we had a we had a phenomenal team. As I said, you know, Stan was brilliant. Uh, Juan K, uh, you know, working with our team gave us a very special boat, um, which, you know, was very much you know, an extension of the team, you know, huge amount of work from you know the likes of 
you know, Mark Christensen and, um, you know, the uh, Killian Bush who built it with the team and Lallestad in Holland, etc. You know, it really was a very special, very special project. So lined up against all your other achievements, is this the pinnacle of, of what you've achieved in your career? Oh, I, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, for sure, because it was, you know, everything up to that was, um, was, uh, you know, stepping stones for that opportunity. Um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of lots of things which I've been involved with, um, you know, a, a, a famous, you know, one of New Zealand's most famous 12-foot skiff sailors, Tim Bartlett, wrote, wrote on social media, you know, a comment the other day said, I don't care what, you know, how important you think everything you've achieved in yachting is, getting getting the kids sailing in cherubs will, will always beat those things in the past, you know. So, um, you know, for lots of different reasons, you know, you're, you're proud of, of different things. You know, obviously, I, I, I'm eternally grateful for the opportunities, you know, with all the teams I'm involved with um, and still get the opportunity to be involved with. But it will be very hard to beat, you know, ABN. I just, you know, here we are on the 26th of May and I think back to those 16 years ago, you know, um, in, a, in, a sh- in a short in a very short period of five or six days, you know, we had this unbelievably high emotion period in our life. You know, we we had the tragedy of losing Hans Horowitz, you know, just 10 days prior to today, 16 years ago. Um, and, 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 then, and then, you know, we were too far away to be involved in the search, but we we're obviously very involved in it from a team standpoint. Um, with the ABN Amro 2, with the kids boat, uh, you know, um, being involved not only in the rescue of Hans's body, but then um, picking up the crew of Movistar who'd sunk in the in that leg. We sailed into Portsmouth. Um, we sailed into Portsmouth, which sealed the victory of the race. But knowing that we'd lost Hans, the team member in in the race, you know, lost his life in that leg, um, you know, was obviously, you know, just devastating. Um, Ten days later, you know, uh, Emma and I were due to be married at at six o'clock on the morning of the 27th. So the morning after our wedding, we got on a charter flight to Hans's funeral. Um you know, two days later, we put the boat back in the water the night before the import race because we were behind schedule on everything. Um, went out on my um, 35th birthday, the 29th, and and won the import race in in Portsmouth. Um, you know, and this 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 was all over a 10 day period. So, is it the pinnacle of my life? Well, you know, that 10 that 10 12. 14 days. I've never actually counted the amount of days from start to finish, but that period in my life um, will will forever, you know, bring a tear to my eye. You know, that's a very, it's I, I'll never forget any every minute of it. That's for sure. Um, and it's it's been it's been amazing to talk my kids, you know, as they grow up and as they understand more and as they read bits and pieces. And, and listen to things and listen to me talk about it, you know, in interviews like this.
um, you know, it's, it's really special, that's for sure. When you reference, you know, the, the tragic life of, of people like Hans, you know, how difficult is it for a skipper to make decisions around when to push and when to pull back? Because, you know, obviously the implications be, can be quite serious, but you also want to push hard to win. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was so it, dealing with Hans at the time, you know, we, we were in a really we were in a really bad uh, storm on the boat, you know, and, and we knew Movistar was sinking. Uh, we knew Movistar had structural issues and, you know, we were in 50 knots of breeze. Um, we were struggling to slow the boat down. Uh, it was, you know, we're North Atlantic storm. Um, and, you know, we ended up with three reefs in the main and just a J4 up, you know, doing up to 35 knots roaring down these waves and then just stopping, uh, violently stopping at the bottom of them. Um, and we, you know, we had a big enough lead, which we didn't need to push too hard, both in the race and, in, but more so, you know, even more so possibly in that leg. But, but still, we had plenty on. And at that stage, you know, um, you're just dealing with it all in a semi sort of out of body experience a little bit you know um it's not until you you hit the dock that you know the emotions start flooding you know in um so you you know you have to you have to be able to deal with it at the time um and and you know you've got you've got the people you've got to look after you've got you know, you've got the whole weight of the responsibility at that time. So you, you just got to get on with it. Um, but I remember as clear as it as if it was yesterday that the that the fathers on the boat um, were struggling. And so I had Brad Jackson, you know, Sydney Gavinier, um, Tony Mutter, uh, obviously Stan. You know, we had we had we had. Guys, I, at that stage, I didn't have kids, but you could clearly tell that the that the reality of the chance of being lost, uh, at, you know, in this race, and you know, even in the conditions we had at that time, was very real, and that was one of the the times that I probably had to be there for the team as their leader the most was the five days from us getting the news that Hans had been recovered successfully but but hadn't made it uh, to getting the boat tied up on the dock in in Portsmouth um, that that's yeah that that's that's the time when I really had to be there for the for the team that's for sure uh, and you know very clear very clear leadership and and yeah uh, it's 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 a very tough time, but it's one of the times which I'm, in a quite weird way, most proud of. Would you say that you get more cautious as you get older in terms of pushing the boundaries? So, uh, you know, I got asked to come back and skip a Sanya in the in the eleven twelve race, um, and I had actually been asked to to come back and skip a Ericsson in the race before or I'd certainly been in discussions with them um but I was yeah I, at that stage I was I was full on with with the British America's Cup team 
um, and mistakenly, I you know I didn't take up the Ericsson opportunity, um, and or discussions about an opportunity. Um, the the um, yeah. So when I came back to to skipper the boat in Sanya um, for Volvo, it it one of my concerns was you know, now that I've got kids, would I be able to, to push as hard? Would, you know, would I be thinking too much about, you, you know, um, just getting the boat from A to B? And um, rightly or wrongly, uh, I was fine. That that wasn't, you know, that wasn't our, our problem. Um, some might say we pushed, we tried to push Sanya too hard, which is what created the issues. Um um, but no, I mean, you know, you know, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it properly. And you know, you, I mean, we will, we never do anything reckless because not only for the sake of, you, you know, it being reckless, but also, you know, that's not the way to win. You'll, you'll eventually come unstuck. Um, so just, just learning where to teeter on that edge is, is obviously the, the skill of, of managing these programs and. And you, you, you'll never know how close you were. Um, you know, there is no doubt you're, unbel- you know, you're often dancing with, with disaster. But, um, but yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a sixth sense there that you, you get the hang of reasonably quickly. Well, you're getting a bit more used to um, boardrooms these days. Because <laughs> uh, your career took a bit of a turn in 2011. You became a majority shareholder in Doyle Sales New Zealand. In 2017, acquired the global brand. Does it kind of feel like your career's gone full circle? Albeit, I'm guessing you're not on the tools uh, that often yeah. as owner and CEO. Yeah, uh, you know, when um, after we got back from the Team Origin experience, I, I was keen from a longevity standpoint to get into a into a business, and we looked at all sorts of opportunities. But but the reality is. I, you know, I, I still loved sail making. I still loved the opportunity to, to sit around with pe- with people and talk about making boats go faster and and coming up with new ideas. And and at the end of the day, you know, that's, you know, that that's that's what I knew the most about. Um. So yeah, when the opportunity came along from Doyle with Doyle Sales, um. It, I, you know, I, uh, it, it was perfect, really. Um, I also loved the fact, you know, that it was very much a David and Goliath situation, um, you know, with, you know, in Doyle Sales positioning against North Sales. Here was little old Doyles trying to take on, you know, try to take on the might, the global might of Norths. And, um, I, you know, I, that was going to be, a, a, you know, a, a, an amazing challenge. And you know, people have said to me, "Well, certainly you're going to miss the competitive. Yeah, aren't you going to miss the the full-on challenge of a of you know a full-time program, you know, like a Volvo and America's Cup?" But the reality is, you know, I've got easily that much of a challenge uh, with Doyle Sales. So um, I'm still doing plenty of yacht racing, be it from the Cherub to De Balamente to you know, the super yachting on Aquarius, et cetera, et cetera. So I still have to be very active yachting out there, you know, using Doyle sales, meeting meeting and networking with the clients and, and the opportunities out there in the market. So 
I can do as much sailing as I like. And from the team and the challenge standpoint, um, you know, we're certainly uh, using a lot of what we learned with the campaigns. You know, I've been, you know, David Duff, um, uh, Duffy and I have been working together since we were, you know, 18 years old. And we, you know, we were both did our first Whitbread together uh, as 21-year-olds with New Zealand Endeavour with with me being on board and him being the shore crew sailmaker and and we're still working you know at, with that same team now and we're just fortunate enough now to you know to to be partnered with with Richard Buzade obviously you know the Buzade name in New Zealand sailing needs no introduction and um, yeah we all we all bring our strength um, to the partnership that the three of us have with Doyle's so yeah we're we're enjoying the ride. So you've, got, you've talked about you're still doing plenty of other sailing. You know, what other – are you running any other sort of sailing projects or are you going to be – other ambitions do you have um, in the medium, long term? Uh, I mean, I've I've been racing as part of the sort of, I guess, if you like, this senior team uh, on on Bellamente, Hap Fouth's maxi program. I've been with them 10 years now. Um, and you know the Balamente program has been very active over the years, uh, and I enjoy that a lot. The Maxi Seventy Two stuff, um, yeah, I've you know lots of bits and pieces. I you know was fortunate enough to um, to to be the tactician and and um, I guess if you like sailing master on Comanche um, for a couple of years with Transpac and Sydney Hobart etc. Um, so yeah, there's, 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 there's plenty of great stuff to do and, and, and yeah, this year already I've, you know, I've done a regatta on Balamente and a regatta on, um, the, 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 um, big Aquarius, the, the super yacht at the St. Bart's Bucket and things. So, um, yeah, those, those are the events now for Doyle sales that I need to be either the maxi, maxi racing. Uh, we've obviously got guys there at the 52 Super Series, which is on this week, um, and the the, the Super Yacht events. Um, that's that's where Doyle Sales need to be uh, present, um, and people want to see me there. And um, yeah, I I enjoy it. As far as you know, big campaigns now. It's it's very sad to see the way you know the Volvo race has gone. Um, you know, especially after the last one. Uh, you know, was was so impressive, um, and you know now, of course, the next one's not coming to New Zealand, which is very sad. Um, and the America's Cup's now leaving New Zealand, which is which is uh, you know, as a business owner in New Zealand, it's it, I understand it, but it doesn't make it any less sad. Um, and uh, so, yeah, as I said, campaign-wise, nothing on the immediate horizon. But, but uh, you know, super engaged in the world of Doyle sales and other people's campaigns. So, so yeah, plenty to do. And I guess another one will be um, transitioning to the wire on a cherub as your son takes a stick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that, that's, that's certainly the plan. That's, and, and um, yeah, we're getting a bit beaten up by Ray and Hugo Davies at the moment, um, although we just, took a race off a couple of weeks ago which was nice um so yeah we've definitely got to do that my my we did actually sail in that configuration a couple of weeks ago but 
but the old man's uh, new knee wasn't that happy with being crunched up, uh, getting in and out on the wire. So, um, yeah, Merrick's into it. He's just started sailing a starling to, with the idea of of uh, him getting on the helm of the cherub. But my ultimate goal is he ends up sailing the cherub or a 29er or something with, a, with someone of, of his age and he kicks the old boy off the boat altogether. I'm guessing you've probably had a couple of decent wipeouts in a cherub, but um, you've probably had a, a, a worse one than that. So um, it's that time of the the, the podcast for us to, uh, for you to tell us your story of your worst wipeout ever. Well, I've I've had some I've had some goodies over the years, as as you know, um, as we can imagine. But one of the ones which still makes me laugh the most is is and is we were out training on the open 60 and um, it was in the middle of the night. So most of the training I did for the transit race, um, we we would sail with three or four people. um, And even though I was training for a single-handed race, I was really keen, a bit like what we were talking about earlier, to, to do what we could to make sure the boat was as fast as it could be. And hopefully that speed would make up for my lack of experience a little bit. So I, we brought a little bit of a sort of Whitbread and America's Cup culture to the Amoka class. And um, so anyway, we were, it was like two o'clock in the morning and we are ripping along in the open 60 with a fractional zero on, reef in the main, staysail, ballasted up, fully canted, haul, you know, hauling. And um, uh, we had Emma, um, Brad Jackson, Troy Tyndall and Matt Smeaton on board and I. And uh, the boat would have been doing, you know, sitting between 20 and 25 knots, really lit up. But the, nobody on deck. So that was the that was the drill, and um, we had the radar on, pilot on, AIS on, you know, all the safety measures going that I will do if I was solo. And I'm sitting in the nav station, and we've got new pilot software. And I I went to alt push a couple of buttons on the pilot to just come down three or four degrees. And the thing, I was probably a bit tired and I've obviously pushed the wrong button and the the pilot started flashing at me auto jibe sequence in three seconds, two, one and jibing. And we carved in, to the, so we uh, just hooked onto a wave. So the boat was like doing 23, 24 knots and we just carved into this, this autopilot jibe um with the most vigor you've ever you've ever experienced and we were just pinned on our side because we were fully stacked fully ballasted fully canted um and all downstairs and and this thing was was rigged in the water um on on a on with the runner with the main pinned on the runner and and about 25 knots of breeze and we were just roaring with laughter downstairs because it's actually quite peaceful it's a bit like capsizing your dinghy on a really windy day um it all goes from mayhem to actually being quite serene and um you know the secret the biggest mistake you can make on those boats is just to push the button on the keel you're better to you have to leave them capsized or sitting on their side and go go outside. The cockpits are all beautifully and deep, so you can sort of walk on the cockpit side walls. Swap the runner over, get roll the Jenica away, get your life 
you know, get your life in order and then push the button and write the boat. But um, I, I never forget. Uh, yeah, it was it was it, there was stuff flying around downstairs. We'd, we'd go and buy a bucket of donuts and Tesco's and and this sort of stuff. Um, but it was yeah, it was one of the most enjoyable, horrendous wipeouts I think you, I'll ever have. But uh, it it remains firmly entrenched in my mind. For some reason, I've got an image of Homer Simpson yeah. looking at a button going, I wonder what this one does. Yeah, well, it had a lot of that about it, to be honest. And then you've got that you've got that few seconds of of this thing flashing, jibing up on the screen. Where you, I had time to yell out, hang on, we're going in, you know, to the other guys who were, who were asleep and... Um, or pretending to be asleep, as as asleep as you can be on a Whitbread, on a uh, a Mocha sixty doing twenty plus knots. But um, yeah, it was it, it was good fun. Well, I'm pleased you could say it was good fun. A few people yeah. might have been feel a bit hor- horrified by that story, but uh, yeah. Hey, look, really appreciate your time. I, I'm aware that uh, you're a busy guy, um, so it's been great to catch up and uh, for you know for us to go through a big part of your career so i really appreciate your time to, to for joining us today on board reach radio no thank you very much michael it's an absolute pleasure and uh yeah these things are all all so much nicer when uh someone's done as much research a- as you have so from me to you thank you very much for that and uh yeah really enjoyed listening to the to other other podcasts i hope I hope mine can be somewhat interesting to to your listeners. So so thank you for the opportunity. Well, that's it for another edition of Boardreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. It's quite incredible to think the next one will be their 50th episode. So look out for that when it lands. In the meantime, it'd be great if you clicked the follow button on the podcast or shared some of your favorites to help it grow. We've been getting some really good feedback and it would be nice for others to know about it too. Thanks for all your support and catch you for the next one.